Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Quick note about the foundation. Uh, We've started on our Anxiety and Depression Codex. Our goal is to do a massive literature review of about 5,000 plus sources, which will be lectures, videos, interviews, peer-reviewed papers, etc., and to find every possible treatment for anxiety and depression and related disorders. So if you want to find out more information about the effort and possibly donate, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org. So today, my guest is uh, Barbara Natterson Horowitz. She's a cardiologist and evolutionary biologist on the faculty of Harvard Medical School. She's part of Harvard University's Department of Human Evolutionary Biology and also uh, part of the Division of Cardiology at UCLA. And her research focuses on, you know, what can we learn from the natural world and apply it to human disease and human insights? Uh, she's the bestseller of a book called Zubiquity, co-authored with Catherine Bowers. And uh, we're going to talk to her today. So, Barbara, thanks for coming. Uh, happy to be here. Well, tell me about, uh, is your interest in helping people or is your interest in animals or did the two come together? Like, what's what's a bit about your background in history? Yeah, so I'm going to give that glib, well, after all, humans are animals answer, um, kind of perhaps in a, a bit of an annoying way to, to start. But the, the answer is what I'm interested in doing is advancing our understanding of health and disease. And uh, what I've learned after spending now almost 15 years away from what I was doing for the first 20 years of my career, which was practicing medicine, human medicine as a, as a cardiologist, as a professor of medicine. What I've learned in the last, in my voyage, you know, over the last decade and a half is uh, that uh, trying to understand human health without also looking at animal health and of course the health of the planet that we share, that all species share, is futile. And um, we can make some advances in, in human medicine, and certainly we have by being pretty anthropocentric. And, and, the, and the field of human medicine has been pretty anthropocentric. 
but by expanding the window through which we look at health and disease. Uh, and, and I'm talking about physical diseases like cancer and cardiovascular disease, but I'm also talking about mental illness. As we as we broaden that window and look at how these processes, in fact, uh, emerge in these other species, um, we see so much more. And then as we ask the question, well, why do we share vulnerability to cancer and heart disease and anxiety and depression and compulsions? Why do we share vulnerability to these issues with other species? Of course, we come to to evolution, to common ancestry. And so my the, the premise of all of my work is that we can understand some by adopting a, a an anthropocentric approach, a human-centered approach. We can understand much, much more by seeing life and health and disease through a species-spanning approach. Then as we really um, widen that aperture and add evolution into um, how we look at problems, um, we, we have a much deeper understanding of why we get sick. And, and by doing this, we can also, I think, accelerate innovation uh, in terms of coming up solution, coming up with solutions for a, a lot of these problems. Yeah, it's weird. I've noticed in science and evolutionary biology, you know, the goal seems to be mostly to help humans. But then anthropomorphic thinking is also frowned upon. But yet we use mice for all these studies, which related and yet not related to us at all. It's just a very strange mix. Yeah, there's a lot of contradictions, aren't there? I mean, it's it's funny. I remember being in maybe fifth or sixth grade and and reading Animal Farm in class, and I remember the teacher introducing that word that you used, you know, anthropomorphism. And and what I remember was sort of her finger kind of wagging at us, um, saying, you know, anthropomorphism is, you know, projecting human characteristics onto an animal. It's not scientific. It's sentimental. And if you're a serious person, a serious scholar, a serious scientist, you ought to, you know, recognize that impulse and suppress it. And, you know, I certainly took that and, and agreed with it. And I spent, you know, I went to, I did my undergraduate work in, in you know, evolutionary biology. I, I went to graduate school. I went to medical school. I trained as a psychiatrist and I trained as an internal medicine and cardiologist. I absolutely um, never questioned the assumption that if you see a behavior in a non-human animal that resembles a behavior in a human, or if you see an expression, right, on an animal's, a non-human animal's face that looks like an expression on a human face, I just assumed that, you know, it was that we were so unique and different that to even consider the possibility that these were these that that these were the same. In other words, that the mechanism that the that the brain biology was the same. That that was ridiculous. But then I had this experience that really changed my whole life. And and it's the it in in one sentence it it is that after years and years of of uh, practicing cardiovascular medicine at UCLA, I was asked to consult at the Los Angeles Zoo on some animal patients, and I began realizing how much shared vulnerability there was to. Um, all of these diseases, including mental illnesses, I started sort of reconsidering that reflexic assumption that it was an anthropomorphism. In other words, that if I saw a look on an animal's face or, you know, a behavior that to assume that it was, you know, that my linking the two was an anthropomorphism. Well, I started to look at what's happened since the mid seventies uh, when I was taking that English class and a lot's happened scientifically, right? The entire field of comparative genomics is one thing, right? Which is, which now allows us to literally know the extent to which we share genes that underlie all kinds of 
physical and, and mental processes. The entire field of, of neuroimaging and advanced neurobiology that has shown us tremendous commonality between not just humans and, and chimpanzees and apes and, and other mammals, dogs and mice, but tremendous uh, commonality even with other vertebrate animals. And, and then finally, we have, we have molecular phylogenetics, I mean, which, you know, allows us to really pinpoint these commonalities and common ancestry. So we are living in a different universe than we were 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, scientifically. And today, I would say, if there is um, a scientific error to be made when looking at a, at a dog with an expression on its face, given what we know about commonality, I would say the error would be the human exceptionalism that has been the basis of this fear of anthropomorphism and that, in fact, today, the default assumption ought to be, given what we know about the commonalities between human and non-human animals, default hypothesis should be that there is shared mechanism. Now, people don't that, even, I mean, even our own cells, our own microbiome, they, they say is different from going to go to us. I mean, even yes. our brain compared to the rest of our body still doesn't receive the same level of, of consideration. So how are they supposed to do that with animals? It's weird. Well, that's right. That's right. Now, look, I, I trained as a physician and, and, you know, human medicine is, is one of many fields that have, you know, historical traditions. I mean, centuries of historical traditions that are very anthropocentric, very human centered. And, you know, people kind of point back to Descartes and, and you can actually trace it, you know, his, you know, his, um, duality, his, you know, dual universe of, of man and animals. I mean, you can, you can trace it back to Aquinas and to Aristotle. So, but, but this idea that humans are separate. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. That the human brain is separate, that the human soul is unique. These ideas are deeply entrenched in culture and in history, at least in Western culture and history. And so, and, and so what that produces is just multitudes of unexamined assumptions about uh, the uniqueness of the human experience. And that includes human disease. Now, I'm saying that as someone who, you know, has, has practiced medicine for a long time, human medicine for a long time. And I have to say, I don't come from um, a very animal, an animally background, let's say, right? I'm, my parents didn't, we didn't really have pets growing up. We went to national parks because we appreciated wildlife, but we were really not very animal focused. And my parents were psychoanalysts. And, you know, Freud really believed that, that Neurosis was a, was a uniquely human privilege. And, and so I was, I really was kind of grown up. I grew up steeped in, in a kind of human exceptionalistic um, point of view. Now that I have learned so much about 
what other species are capable of, what they're vulnerable to. And in terms of, of medicine, that that while, yes, we humans do all kinds of things to dial up our risk of heart disease and cancer and obesity and anxiety, the fundamental vulnerability is ancient. The fund- fundamental vulnerability that we have to these disorders, that vulnerability is ancient, and we share it with other animals living on the planet today. That is not something that I learned in medical school. That is not a sentimental statement. That is a, the result, that statement is a result of an integration of what I understand about evolutionary biology and human and animal medicine. But what do you, what do you mean? What kind of conditions occur in animals that people will be surprised to hear about? Right. So I'll tell you the ones that surprised me when I first encountered them. Uh, so as a cardiologist, atherosclerosis is the, the most common diagnosis uh, that I make. And it's um, atherosclerosis, of course, is the disease of the arteries that, that is, is responsible for the vast majority of heart attacks and strokes. And because, you know, after World War II in the late 1940s, um, you know, all of these GIs were, you know, were streaming back into the United States. And these were young strapping lads and they had survived, you know, battles. But one of the things that, that people were recognizing was that there was this increase, that, that there were lots and lots of young people, young men and women who were dying of heart attacks. And of course, you know, FDR, who had terrible high blood pressure, you know, at Yalta, his physician was there with him. He recorded blood pressures of 236 over 130. Uh, that God. famous photograph where he's sitting with Stalin and he's sitting with um, Churchill, seriously hypertensive, really, really hypertensive. And he dies of a hemorrhagic stroke several months after Yalta. So sort of the world is all of a sudden looking at cardiovascular disease and thinking, oh my goodness, what the hell is going on? And you have to remember and it's, it's kind of hard to, to imagine this, but back then we didn't know that cigarette smoking could, um, accelerate cardiovascular disease, right? Physicians smoked. My parents smoked and we didn't know a lot about diet. We didn't really understand the connection between cholesterol and hypertension and, and all that stuff and heart disease. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. The Framingham Heart Study was initiated in the late 1940s, and that's the most famous um, prospective study. And they followed about 5,000 men and women in this little town in, in Massachusetts to see what they were, you know, recording what they were eating, how much they were exercising, what their blood pressures were, et cetera, et cetera. And they began to see very quickly that the people who were smoking had higher rates of heart attacks and strokes. And the people who were hypertensive, that is, they had high blood pressure, had greater risks, et cetera. And from that, we came up with this idea that there are risk factors for atherosclerosis, right? And we all know what they are, right? We, we know cigarette smoking, bad for your heart, don't do it. And we tell patients, stop smoking if you want to reduce your risk of, of a heart attack, right? And we know that high blood pressure is risk. And we say, modify your diet, lose weight, exercise, do all these things because so, so there are all of these lifestyle changes that we recommend and we say that this is prevention. All right. So listen, I was practicing medicine for a long time, teaching medical students. I certainly had a deep awareness of how uh, modern human lifestyles contributed to heart disease. What I didn't know until I started really taking a deep dive into the world of veterinary medicine is that there are other animals who are very vulnerable to atherosclerosis including birds. Now, not all birds. There are many different species of birds, 
And remember, we're talking about, you know, I'm not saying that birds are dropping out of the sky with heart attacks, right? I'm not saying that they're, but, but I'm saying that, that under the right conditions, these animals, their arteries are also vulnerable to atherosclerosis. And well, what, what kind of conditions tend to cause this to happen? Well, um, most of the cases that have been recorded are in captive animals, but the, but, and, and that means that they're not getting the kind of probably physical activity and they're not eating the kinds of diets that they would in the wild. Um, but some of the cases are in wild animals. And I, I do, you know, most of the examples that I have of atherosclerosis, whether it's in a hippopotamus or whether it's in, a, you know, um, an eagle or whether it is in a, a walrus, and those are all examples that I, that I have, you know, most of the cases are in captive animals, right? Where, where their lifestyles are sort of not wild. However, when, when these things do happen in captivity, but also in the wild, it shows that that essential vulnerability is there. In other words, the, it doesn't mean that those animals are necessarily going to develop atherosclerosis, but that whatever the evolutionary history, that the, the trade-offs, right? You know, evolution is this process that is optimizing phenotypes. In other words, it's, it's fitness, what we call evolutionary fitness, um, you know, is the, is sort of an expression of an animal's, um, you know, survival and reproductive ability. Well, your ability to survive as an animal and to reproduce are about how aligned your body and your behavior is with the environment in which you find yourself. Do you have the necessary ability and skills to evade danger, predators and other dangers? Do you have the necessary physical ability and, 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 and mental cognitive skills to Leverage the opportunities in the environment to, for food and, and so that you can maximize your, your reproductive output, right? So evolution is this process, this hyper iterative process that is shaping, you know, animals to be maximally optimized to their environments. And it's complicated, right? We aren't just, um, a blood vessel that is, you know, moving through time. Blood vessels, we've got, you know, we've got this extraordinarily complex, you know, body full of multiple systems that are interdependent. But the point is that sometimes a characteristic that makes us vulnerable, say to atherosclerosis, may also confer benefit to an animal. And sometimes those benefits come early in life and they're very important, even though an animal may pay the price with vulnerability to a disease later in life. But sometimes, Richard, sometimes that vulnerability is a consequence of the fact that that characteristic may have been very adaptive, very fitness enhancing in animal ancestors. But in our species, which is 200,000 years old, right? It's a blink in our species is no longer adaptive. So when I hear about atherosclerosis, so atherosclerosis can occur in, in lots of different bird species. In some cases, they do develop heart attacks. In some cases, they do develop strokes. Breast cancer is another one. So certainly, you know, we know a lot about breast cancer now and, and that rates of breast cancer are increasing in, in certain populations, women who, you know, diet, dietary factors, weight, um, age at puberty, exposures to to environmental contaminants, all of those things are driving breast cancer rates. But it turns out other species in the wild also 
um, are vulnerable. That breast tissue of the human mammal, and you know, I've done a study where I've identified breast cancer in almost every single mammalian lineage. That this vulnerability is ancient. There were um, over the course of about fifteen years, there were many a really disproportionate, unexpectedly high number of beluga whales with who were washed, you know, up on shore, their carcasses were, you know, were retrieved and necropsies were performed. And um, at least half of the females had ovarian or breast cancer. A lot of them had breast cancer. And, you know, this is sort of, for me, when I first encountered this, this was a little bit disruptive because I, I'm not even sure why. There's just something disruptive about, you know, a sort of a, a, a mini epidemic of breast cancer among these beluga whales in the St. Lawrence estuary uh, in Canada. But in fact, what that says is that the vulnerability to breast cancer is probably as old as our human common ancestor with whales. And as it turns out also, the that particular body of water was highly contaminated with polyaromatic hydrocarbons and, and other known carcinogens. And by the way, there was a higher than expected rate of breast cancer in women who were living around that area. So from atherosclerosis to breast cancer, those were unexpected um, and really challenged me to think beyond that sort of narrow homo sapiens centric point of view that I had. But then to be, to be honest, and this is very, very interesting to me, I have two major research areas right now. One is part of um, the initiative that I launched recently called female health across the tree of life. So the breast cancer vulnerability is part of that, but the other side is mental illness. And, you know, as the, as a child of two shrinks and as someone who trained as a psychiatrist herself, I really had never thought about other species being vulnerable to psychopathology. Now, these days, I mean, many, many of us have dogs and cats who have anxiety or compulsions. And people, a lot of people know this because they're, you know, they're treating their animals with Prozac and related drugs. But what I learned about and in Zubiquity, which was Catherine Bowers in my first book, we wrote um, about half the book is about mental illness in, in animals and humans, is that Mental, you know, mental health and, and mental illness, that sort of balance, um, that we struggle with as, as a human species, that we share that, that challenge with, with other species, whether it's eating disorders, whether it's self injury, whether it's anxiety, whether it's compulsions, et cetera. Those things were a very big surprise to me. Well, again, for some of these conditions, if the prevalence in people, let's say is, you know, 20, 30%, but in animals, it's 1% or less. What does that tell you versus if there's a pathology disease that's, you know, similar levels of incidence in the animals and humans? Right. So good question. That would be a wonderful, if, if we had that information, right, we, we certainly can, we can, we know much, much, much more about the incidence of mental illness in humans than we do about its occurrence, you know, outside of, of dogs, cats, horses. So animals who are, you know, directly in our care and, and heavily bred, but, but you're right. If you, if you know that the vulnerability is shared, but that the incidence or prevalence is much higher in one group than another, then that leads you to one of two conclusions. Either our essential vulnerability is higher, or we are, through our lifestyles, through our environments, through our exposures, through our social structures, you know, that we unmask that vulnerability and we amplify it. In other words, that, that our human cultures are is really contributing to um, increased rates of mental illness. And I happen to believe that is the case. But that does not mean that it's unique to our species. 
And it also doesn't mean that culture and experience is the singular cause. We have a neurobiology that makes us vulnerable. Asking why we have that neurobiology that makes us vulnerable is critically important to understanding it. And one very um, important first step to answering why is to ask what other animals living with us on Earth today, in other words, extant species, are also vulnerable to those mental processes. And can we begin to understand anxiety, depression, et cetera, through the lens of evolutionary biology? So, I mean, in understanding that animals can have very similar pathologies to humans, what, what does that do for science and for, for health and for experimentation? Where does that push us? I mean, we haven't gone yet. Yeah. So, so I'm going to start with a non-scientific takeaway. One big piece of this, and um, it connects to the science. So Tom Insel, or actually it was Steve Hyman. So one of the former heads of the National Institutes of Mental Health has identified stigma mental health stigma as the leading barrier to, you know, accelerated advances in mental health. Okay, stigma. Now, there's been a lot of attention placed on stigma, but the fact that it persists means we need to, we need to continue to think about uh, ways to help, you know, society and, and patients themselves recognize that this vulnerability is part of a, you know, a natural legacy, let's say, that it's, um, that the shame and the, the, kinds of theories of causation that are self, self-stigmatizing self and blaming, that those are unproductive and not scientific. So I think knowing that the vulnerability to mental illness is not uniquely human, that alone maybe, maybe can um, help counter stigma, mental illness stigma, stigma. But from a scientific perspective, I think there are just a multitude of um, unexplored opportunities, starting with the kind of lowest hanging fruit, which is I'll give you, I'll tell you a little story. When, when we were studying, when we were writing the first book, I, I had trained as a psychiatrist, as you know, and, and I had worked on an adolescent, inpatient adolescent unit. And at that time, there were a number of uh, uh, patients who were self-injurers. Um, at that time, they were called cutters. Um, there were some colloquial, other colloquial expressions, but it was, it's non, it's not, it's not suicidal. It's not suicidal self-harm, uh, but it is, it's non-suicidal self-harm um, cutting. All right. So when, when Catherine and I began exploring, you know, just asking questions like, do other animals do X? Do other animals do Y? Um, this seemed absurd to me. I mean, I, I really, I was reluctant to even ask the question because it just seemed so clearly um, related to culture and, and human life and contemporary times. By the way, I'm sharing that and I'm embarrassed at this point that that's what I thought, but you know, it, it was what I thought. So what, what I quickly learned is that veterinarians know that there are certain kinds of animals that if they're placed under certain kinds of conditions will start to self-injure and they will do things like bite themselves, pull out their hair, pluck out their feathers. There's a condition called feather plucking disorder. In some cases, they will lick and lick and lick and lick until they uh, their skin is raw and, and cracked and open. Um, there, there are lots of forms of self-injury that occur in other animals. But there are types of it, types of conditions that will um, really pull it out and, and amplify it. And one of them is isolation. So an animal who's isolated is at higher risk of self-injuring. And the greater the isolation and the boredom, um, the greater the risk. And in fact, one of the reasons that in, in well-run zoos and aquaria, there are whole departments of animal enrichment in which they, you know, despite the fact that the animal is in a captive environment, they're given, you know, all kinds of opportunities to be challenged and to be physical and to 
you know, to not, to not be bored. Well, it's interesting to look at self-injury to take that veterinary framework and to apply it to the human animal self-injurer. And, um, and it actually works rather well and has gotten me thinking about how, how we might use that kind of information. I mean, one just really fascinating parallel is that the degree of isolation uh, in animals, you know, correlates with the risk of self-injury and the severity of self-injury. The same thing is true among human prisoners. If you use right basic thinking, who wants to be in a cage? Who likes it? Who wants to be in isolation? So why is it a surprise? I would think it's only a surprise. Exactly. I'm I'm having trouble hearing you, Richard. That's right. The point was that prisoners who are in general population versus isolate uh, solitary confinement, you see rates of self-injury much, much, much higher in in solitary confinement. And it's probably an attempt to self-stimulate, to self-soothe. And it's and it's, you know, shared across the tree of life. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it seems like if you I don't know, I guess it shouldn't be surprising. You You put a living thing in a cage or you keep it in captivity, no matter how wonderful the captivity of course, so in captivity. I mean, who would want to be kept in a? You know, I guess it's like maybe going to the uh, the fabled federal prison where you can watch TV and you know play tennis and all that, but you're still in prison. You know, right, right. I mean, the reason that it's 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 one of those sort of um, obvious, non-obvious kinds of things, but the idea that animals that boredom and enrichment, right, that ice that countering isolation with companionship, which is which is by the way why they put a goat in a horse's stall sometimes or a chicken in a horse's stall, right? Countering isolation is one of the feels like a not very fancy psychiatric intervention for cutting or you know non-suicidal self-injury. It's very clear and plain. And I think the idea that companionship, that stimulation, that purpose, those kinds of things that don't sound very medical can be used to treat or even prevent self-injury, those kinds of things. Those are the kinds of interventions that I think are pretty interesting. The other scientific opportunities around mental illness has to do with breeds. I mean, we know that certain dog breeds who have, you know, different genetics and other dog breeds are much more vulnerable to certain mental illnesses. There are certain Dobermen, for example, that uh, that suck their flanks. They do this compulsive flank sucking. And it's it's um, the mutation that um, underlies that behavior. It's, it's known. And there are other tail chasing behaviors that have been linked to specific mutations in other dog breeds. And we can take those mutations, we can look at the genes that are those areas, and we can use those to improve our ability to identify you know, regions of interest um, in, in human psychiatry. We can really um, accelerate the you know, the field of precision psychiatry. So what areas of this, um, you know, animal versus human pathology or study of, you know, study of pathology, do you want to focus on from here? Which do you feel like are the most important? Is it mental disorders or? I want to, I'm going to, I want to talk about the physical stuff, but I want to, I want to share some exciting, what I think is very exciting work, which in my mind is the future. And, you know, so I've been talking to you about common ancestors, right? And uh, what we can learn by recognizing our shared vulnerability to breast cancer, right? Let's say that, you know, if I have a vulnerability to breast cancer and a platypus has vulner- another mammal, like the echidna or platypus has vulnerability, that our common ancestor 175 million years ago, that she was also vulnerable. Okay, there's a lot we can learn by looking backwards in time, but we can also um, potentially find new solutions. And this is what I'm fully working on now in my lab by by thinking about the differences in the physiology of other female animals, and I'm focusing on females, um, and how those 
those differences represent solutions to problems that we haven't been able to solve. One big issue in medicine and in um, women's health is the issue of high blood pressure during pregnancy. So there's a condition called preeclampsia, and it's very serious. It is it is one component of it is is what's called gestational hypertension. So you know high blood pressure during pregnancy, and it's responsible. It's a leading, if not the leading, cause of mortality, fetal and maternal mortality. It's a very big problem. So what I did was I said, well, what are the non-human female animals, the species in which a high blood pressure might be tolerated? And um, I've been working on giraffe as as my research um, kind of focus for a couple of years, because of course, giraffe, their brains are two and a half meters above their hearts. And so their hearts have to work very, very hard, which translates into a normal blood pressure of like 280 over 120 for an adult giraffe. Oh, wow. Right? For us, 120 over 80 is normal. So they have, and compared with all the other mammals, and we've done this work, they they have the highest blood pressures of any other mammal. Okay. Now, if I had high blood pressure over a long period of time, I would develop kidney failure. I develop heart failure. I develop all kinds of eye problems. And if I was pregnant, gestational hypertension would put me and my fetus at really severe risk. But it appears that giraffe mothers, pregnant giraffes and their fetuses do just fine. How? And that's been the focus of my research to really understand what are the adaptations? What are the evolved differences in the giraffe that allow her to um, tolerate this high blood pressure without the risk that, you know, our species has. And, you know, it's interesting and I, and it's, and you can pinpoint it. And this is a lot of fun. I mean, this is kind of high school level biology, but, you, you know, pushing the high tech button because so giraffe, modern giraffe had the common ancestor, the most recent common ancestor of the modern giraffe is the modern okapi. And, uh, you know, if you, if you don't know what an okapi is, you should Google it immediately because they're really interesting and fascinating coloration, but modern giraffes and okapi shared an ancestor about 11 and a half million years ago. Now, one of the big differences between an okapi and a giraffe is that a giraffe has a long neck, right? The cervical vertebrae are enlarged, which leads to this long neck and okapi do not. And so what that means is okapi are the closest sort of relative to giraffe, but they have a not elevated blood pressure. And so what I've been doing is looking at the differences in the the genes between genes of relevance that are relevant to high blood pressure and pregnancy, et cetera, in the okapi versus the giraffe to identify what what this remarkable uh, solution is that in the last 11.5 million years, since the giraffe and the okapi shared a common ancestor, you know, what, what, what evolved adaptations happened? And, and once we've identified that to see whether we can use that solution as a blueprint for innovation around this huge problem in women's health. Well, what, what are the parallels? What do you mean? Well, I mean, right now, this is the, this is the research. Um, one of the things we've, we've, I've done similar research to figure out how does, how is it that a giraffe doesn't develop heart failure from high blood pressure the way we do? And it turns out they, there is, um, probably a suppression of, of fibrosis that stiffens the heart in us and in other mammals. So that's an adaptation. And that then is an opportunity to say, well, is there a way for us to leverage that information to um, develop similar kind of, um, of 
you know, um, intervention to suppress fibrosis in, in humans. Um, and similarly with the, with the giraffe. I mean, in other words, what, what we're saying is that if you look around at the physiology of other mammals, other female mammals, since I'm focusing on female issues, all of a sudden you begin to see that there are solutions all around us for problems that we think may be intractable problems that we haven't been able that that you know contemporary biomedical research hasn't found solutions for um there's like long long lists of them we women it, when a woman is pregnant of course she shouldn't drink alcohol um alcohol is you know a, a, ter- a teratogen it can it can create an abnormal you know embryo and that's true in in other species but we know that there are many many animals millions of species that regularly consume fermented vegetation so Perhaps they have an evolved adaptation that protects them from um, the adverse exposure to alcohol. There are countless examples of, of how we can do this, how, and this is what I do in my research. I look at a, a big challenge in human medicine, whether it's a problem in women's health or whether it's a, a challenge in mental health. And I ask the question, has evolution already solved this problem? Can we identify another species that has unique physiology, unique biology that contains a solution that, you know, that evolution, which is this massive research and development kind of endeavor, this hyper iterative endeavor that, that we've not been able to solve, even with all of the high tech, um, even with all of the, the billions and billions of, of dollars that we've poured into it, that the answers may lie in the natural world um, solved by evolution. So are there any, again, where are you going to take your own work? Are there particular conditions that you want to go into more depth and look for the parallels? Or is this more of an overall, you no, want to no. bring this to the scientific world I'm, so that they're aware of this? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm working on this, the um, the, the giraffe, the preeclampsia and the heart failure because I'm a, I'm a cardiologist. It's what I know. But I'm also looking at infertility and reproductive senescence. There are animals, there are female animals that um, are are fertile that that conceive and produce healthy offspring for 150 years. You know, we lose our reproductive capacity, you know, by the fifth decade, you know, 40s at the latest, right? So um, there are a lot of those are the kinds of conditions I'm interested in. I am, I come up with, I, I work with different groups to um, identify plausible hypotheses to identify species that may be worth, you know, kind of um, looking at. And so I see my role as sort of really putting a light, turning a light on for my colleagues in the human medical community to not just investigators, but also clinicians, just to be aware of the natural world as this incredibly rich source of insights for human health. But, and it's a very, very big but, but we have to in the 21st century um, recognize that you know the health of humans the health of animals and the health of the planet are interdependent and that that the best way at this point of taking care of human health or one of the best ways is to also be taking care of the health of of other of other animals in the environment and so in my work i really do a a lot of teaching, a lot of lecturing, a lot of talking to physicians, a lot of partnering collaborating with groups uh, who are looking at high impact um, human issues, right? So whether it's, you know, cardiovascular disease, whether it's glaucoma, whether it's um, endometriosis, whether it's ovarian cancer, whether it's fetal alcohol, et cetera. Those are, those are some of the projects I'm currently 
developing. But the idea is that we can no longer afford to be working in silos, that that the exceptionalisms, whether we're talking about human exceptionalism um, or other exceptionalisms, that, that those are blindfolds. They're scientific blindfolds, and, and blindfolds prevent us from recognizing connections that once we are able to see those connections, allow us to, you know, see much, much more and be more effective. So I see my role now as helping to kind of show specifically how different groups can use this species spanning and evolutionary approach, uh, how, how to apply the lenses to um, ask better questions, hopefully do better research, and ideally come up with um, better solutions that protect not only human health, but also, again, the health of other species and the planet itself. Very good. Barbara, what, um, again, if you were to instruct or if other scientists in other fields were to listen to you, which fields and which uh, areas do you think need kind of the biggest push to incorporate this view? Right. The animals so, are similar to us. Like, what, well, every what, field, ev- there is not a single condition in which a, a an expanded, broad, comparative perspective can't help in an evolutionary perspective. I mean, if, if for no other reason, because we know that the environment increasingly is implicated in so many diseases, right? Whether it's – so there is not a single field that can't benefit. I'm starting – I love that question because it's sort of been a problem for me, like, well, this can be applied to anything. Where do we want to start? So I guess best place to start is where there's been a kind of areas that have not received enough attention. And, you know, we know now that, you know, until 1993, women were excluded from many clinical trials, right? And until 2016, female lab animals were not regularly included in preclinical studies, right? So so we've got some catching up to do when it comes to women's health. And, and you know, we know that that, you know, that in the Anthropocene, I mean, climate, you know, climate and other environmental changes, they're impacting the health of everyone, but women and girls are disproportionately impacted by the adverse health effects of those things. So, um, so I think women's health is a really good place to start. And everything we learn um, from women's health is relevant to, to male health as well. Women's health includes pregnancy, which is of the health of everyone, of the health of the next generation. And so, um, I think women's health is a is a great place to start, and I I do really feel that mental health is there's a huge opportunity. There's a much bigger barrier because I think it's one thing to say, okay, fine, you know, a an echidna's heart um, and a human heart, they're both mammals, and okay, I I believe that they're both vulnerable to the same things, but the human brain. Now that's something that's extremely extremely unique, and I think there's more resistance to. The, the notion that, um, you know, psychiatrists and others can, can really learn a lot by, by kind of diving into vulnerability to mental illness and other animals. But that barrier is, is absolutely one can pull down that barrier, you know, brick by brick with evidence, with discussion. And very often when I do this, what I discover when I have conversations with, you know, other scientists and, and folks is that, that they kind of know this already, but Again, we have so many unexamined assumptions that are the product of just centuries of, of layers and layers and layers of human exceptionalism, but that, you know, now we can really begin looking at that. Not that there aren't ways in which we humans are unique. We are like all species. We have unique characteristics, but we can begin to recognize that there's so much commonality, including in our vulnerability of um, our brains, of our central nervous systems to disease. And that that insight can um, open the door to all kinds of, you know, a new way of, of understanding why, why we get mentally ill, I mean, and what, and what the nature of mental health is. Well, very good, Barbara. 
thanks for coming on the podcast. And where can people go for a, um, you know, for their first look at your material? Should they buy Zubiquity or like, where can they go to start engaging with your material and you? Right. So yeah, our most recent book, Catherine Bowers and I, our most recent book is Wildhood, which is based on a a Harvard course that um, we taught coming of age on planet Earth planet earth and that's um available you know in all in all forms as is zubiquity um they can also go to uh, my website so that's um if you just google my name barbara natterson horowitz i have a website where a lot of uh, the stuff that i'm doing and our conferences are featured and i i love to have conversations with scientists particularly physicians and lots of veterinarians and others in the human health professions and animal health professions it's um this has been just an unexpected journey for me that, you know, that started because I kind of stepped out of my human, my, my human silo. So I'd love to hear from people if they have interest in, in collaborating or ideas. That's part of the, that's part of the plan. Okay. Very good. Well, Barbara, thank you for coming on the podcast. And I'm glad someone's thinking about this because it seems to be uh, very rare, you know, to the point of, I guess, it's, I feel like it's put the brakes on actually what science can accomplish by having these views. So it's important to, uh, you know, to understand that we are animals. And again, that what they suffer from, we suffer from and vice versa, not hundred percent, but a large part. Right. Recognizing commonality instead of difference just seems like um, something we ought to be doing more of in the 21st century. Well, well said. Well, Barbara, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Oh, an absolute pleasure. Take care. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.